0: everybody. Welcome into the Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a great chat for you today with legendary independent film producer Ted Hope. We will get to that conversation with Ted in just a few moments. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and perhaps we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's bring out Ted Hope. Ted's been a producer on over 70 films. He's been a studio executive on over 60 films. He was CEO of a startup streamer, co-head of three production companies, executive director of a film society and festival, a professor of practice at two universities, and founder of a post-production facility, two websites, two think tanks, and an app. Ted launched Amazon's foray into feature film production, leading them to 19 Oscar nominations and five wins. As a producer, his films have received 25 Oscar nominations, with six wins. Ted's memoir and newsletter, Hope for Film, are both must-reads. Ted helped launch the feature film careers of Ang Lee, Nicole Holofcener, Hal Hartley, and many others. His most recent films include the first narrative from Oscar-winning documentary director Roger Ross Williams, titled Cassandro, as well as the documentaries Evgeny Afanivsky's Ukraine war documentary, Freedom on Fire, Marina Zenovich's Jerry Brown, The Disruptor, and uh, his wife, Vanessa Hope's film about Taiwan called Invisible Nation. Ted, welcome into the back room. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. It is an honor to have you here. You're a really pioneering movie guy, and I want to get into a lot of that with you today because there's so much going on in the movie business right now. But I want to just start a little bit more back in time, Uh you worked on Trust, Hal Hartley's second film, which has gone on to become an indie classic. Uh, you worked with my late wife, Adrian Shelley, who was the star of that movie. So I just want to ask you, what, what were those days like working on that film? And it's, it's funny. Actually, it goes back before that, because I also worked on The
1: Unbelievable Truth. And uh although I'm uh credited as the assistant director on there. I I feel I was one of the the producing team on that one. And to take it all back, you know, a lot of it starts with uh utter failure, like anything else, right? That um uh, I had the good fortune of uh, coming across Hal Hartley. Um, actually right when I had like the key thing to starting my career as a producer, so I'll, I'll jumble all these things together. If you, if mm-hmm. you don't mind that, sure. uh, you know, I, I moved, I moved to New York around like 82 or 83, which was like, right when she's got to have it blood, simple stranger than paradise all happened. Um, I was going to NYU had, had a nice ride there, but it wasn't right for me. And I was, you know, restless and wanted to make movies. And saw these guys making these movies cheap, you know, authentic, bold, and really wanted to do that. And I I was working as a production assistant and failing as a producer to learn my way up. You know, basically I had lots of projects I couldn't get made. And uh, one morning on the back of the grip truck. This guy, Rich Ludwig, came to me and said, you know, he knew I was then also working for a producer who had some development funds. He had a friend, uh, but he knew the friend uh, wouldn't go for the guy whose money uh, I had, but would I read his stuff? And that was Hal's stuff. And I totally dug it. Um, different project. And it was three years of, uh, of working together with him, uh, failing not him failing, me failing to find money to put his movies together, but also alongside kind of this transformative change that was happening in the film business on a couple of fronts. The home video business, VHS, was booming. Um, They needed product for the shelves. And the cost of making movies was going down, down, down. People were figuring out like the credit card way of making it. It was like the rise of no bud, no budget filmmaking in New York city. And, uh, both Hal's cousin, Bob Goss, a director in his own right. And I worked for different kind of, uh, so- somewhat sleazy entities that were trying to make movies on the super cheap, you know, under, <laughs> under six figures. And, uh, you know, we would get together on the weekends and drink beer and tell these, you know, what we thought were hilarious horror stories of making something for nothing and not knowing where you were going. And Hal listened very well. You could see this guy, like, his wheels turning. And one day, you know, Hal called me and told me to meet him in Grand Central Station, and he he was going to take me where he grew up. And I was like, well, that seems a little odd and weird. And on the train, he gave me a copy of the script, The Unbelievable Truth. And he said, uh, I asked him when he wrote it, because I thought I had read everything he had had done. He said over the last two weeks. Um, And he wrote it for the locations he knew. And we were going to take everything that Bob and I had learned along the way and make this movie for nothing, because Hal and Bob and his Hal's brother had all taken out loans from Citibank, 15,000 bucks a piece to buy a home computer, this newfangled thing, the, the, the jetpack we'd been waiting for, <laughs> a desktop computer uh, that would uh, you know, change all of our lives. Little did we know. And um, he was going to use his money. Uh, they were all going to use their money to make a movie. And I had said I could make a movie for 100,000, so we must be able to make it for forty-five. We got it in the can for 55. Hmm. Uh, we shot in 11 days, like a two to one ratio on 35 millimeter short ends. And while and we prepped it all out of uh, Hal's office where he worked for Jerry Bronstein, who eventually, uh, along with Bruce Weiss, uh, bought out Hal's loans and contributed the rest of the money to finish it. And all said, it was like 150 grand since we sold it for two fifty, it worked out nice. Distributed the profits amongst everyone, but one day in the the prep of that movie, you know, Hal was doing casting, and this uh, young actress walked in, and I swear, like just looking in the back and seeing uh, Hal and Adrian, uh, you know, start to talk and audition you could tell Hal had found what he was looking for in his leading actress. And, you know, basically after that, the movie was cast. And you always wonder, like, how those things happened because it was, like, such a perfect pairing, went through both of these movies, you know, and it's, so, it's, it's incredibly exciting for me right now in that all of Hal's work, virtually 30 films' worth of his work, is now up and streaming on Criterion. And, like, literally... The other day, somebody sent me a lookbook, you know, the, 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 the visual plan for their film. Um, and there was a photo of Adrian from Trust in her waking up moment where she's doing the nuclear uh, bomb. And, you know, talking to the filmmaker, they were so excited to find this work on Criterion. It was like just what they were looking for 30 years later, right? You know, after it being made, not quite 25 years later, excuse me. Um, and uh, so that film, which sets the stage for trust to get to the question, um, you know, what was uh, one the number I have stuck in my head, because I once counted, and this may be accurate, it may not be fully accurate. But 22 people, I'm pretty sure, from that cast and crew of The Unbelievable Truth, went on to direct feature films. 22 Mm. people. Nobody came from privilege on that crew. Mm. Everybody, like it was mostly the SUNY Purchase, Mafia is not where I went. Um, Everybody, you know, know, basically we were in it together and we saw what could happen, which was kind of close to a miracle, except it did get repeated quite a few times that we sold the film for a profit. And even though it was a total non-union movie and we actually didn't know enough to have people sign the contracts, when we got the money, we distributed the profits amongst the cast and the crew. And everyone on that film got paid a full union wage. Right, And the beauty of it was they all got paid on December 23rd. Like that's when it came through, right before the December holidays. Everybody had something they didn't count on, and it was good people treating people well and being in together and all benefiting. So when we called them back, uh, like around like January 6, and said HAL had a new script called "Trust," and we didn't have any financing, but damn it, we were going to get it by the end of March would they start to prep because we had to get it done in time to make the different deadlines that we had imposed on ourselves. And everyone said yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, the, the money in the end, in the end came through. Uh, luckily those 22 people hadn't yet turned into directors. And I should add that like beyond like turning into directors, you know, our makeup artist uh I think won her second Oscar last year, Judy Chin, um, you know, wow. for for uh The Whale. Mm-hmm. Uh, the script supervisor went out to produce great movies and Ruark. Um uh, there were people that like, you know, who weren't directors, myself included, who went on to have great careers. Uh, and I think so much comes from those simple lessons of having ambition executing well within the means that you have and rewarding everyone based on their contribution in a truly fair way. You know, sure. We might've been able to pocket all that money or Bruce and Jer- Jerry could have pocketed all that money, but everyone had a profound sense of decency and contributed it. And I think that was like the most inspiring thing. Um, and uh, you know, it's so nice now to see it living forever, infecting a whole new group of folks who have stumbled upon that work.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny what you were mentioning before about the casting process. Uh, When I was making my documentary about Adrian, I was talking with Bob Burke and he said, uh, you know, we we would have like a room full of women waiting to audition. And then Adrian comes in and and then leaves. And he goes like, I looked at Hal and was like, do we send them home now? (laughs) Like, Are we actually going to talk to these women because they don't have a chance, right? Like Adrian is getting this part. It was a very funny conversation the way he brought that moment to life. But yeah, I always think about stuff like that. Like how do people get together at a moment in time to create a pairing that just becomes, you know, it's like Simon and Garfunkel grew up in the same fucking block in Forest Hills. How does that work, Right. Right. I mean, how yeah. I mean try to explain that, where they're just so yeah. in sync musically and, and can create this stuff together. Um, well, you know, on that
1: note, you know, I, I've always, you know, felt like I I so benefited by by the kind of right place, right time that so many of us were in. Right. You know, back before the fact that we were all connected, if you wanted to find a like minded person, you had to go where they most likely were, right? And that for, I, I think, the folks who knew that they didn't have a Los Angeles sensibility and wanted to make movies and were American was New York City in the late 80s, early 90s. And there's a huge thing, like they always show like in any industry, when you have a greater concentration of an industry in a, in a locale, group learning accelerates mm-hmm. you everybody it lifts all boats um and i wouldn't have the career that i have if i didn't if someone hadn't introduced me to james sheamus mm-hmm. if i hadn't got had been forced to sell uh one of my first films in, that nobody wanted to sell and got to meet david lindy at, at the berlin film festival these men became my business partners one day anthony bregman uh, walked in with a photograph of the Angelica Film Center and had fo- had recognized that somehow we were connected to all five films that were playing that day. And that day, my assistant at the time blew up the coffee machine, and Anthony asked if he could become my assistant, and he did. And he became my business partner uh, for 15 years and a lifelong friend. The first day that I went to film school in New York City, and was going to drop out that day because I was so unhappy at the end of the day. Finally, somebody said something that I liked. And when I looked in the back of the room, it was Ann Carey. And Ann Carey transferred into to NYU the same time, became a lifelong friend, longtime business partner, also with Anthony, also with James, also with with, with David. My life uh, you know, never would have been the same except for the fact that everybody's paths crossed. Christine Vichon, Pam Koffler, you know, Larry Maestrich. We all had the same ideas at the same time, executing in different ways. And it made all of our work better, mm-hmm. you know.
0: And so you're talking about, you, you headed up and founded Good Machine with Seamus. Um, but you, you, you were involved in movies like The Brothers McMullen, In the Bedroom, The Ice Storm, The Savages, The Wedding Bank with American Splendor, Happiness, in in throughout your career. I mean, these are amazing movies. And that was a time when independent film really thrived. Quality dramas, family dramas, personal stories. Um, so much seems to have changed since then. When you look back on those days, when it was, I won't say easy, but relatively easier to get a movie like that made um does it make you sad that that landscape has so changed? yeah, well, it doesn't actually make me sad because I believe
1: everything is constantly in flux. It took me a long time to really grow comfortable with that i uh I said it for a long time without accepting it. it was still like shaking my fist at the cloud. Why can't you be the way you used to be? you know, uh, but it's always been changing, you know, like I I uh I write obsessively. I have this uh Substack called Hope for Film that that's pretty popular these days. And um but I wrote my very first post uh post, you know, article for Filmmaker Magazine in 1995 and it was called Indie Film is Dead. And basically, I've been writing that same article ever since, <laughs> right? You know, on a daily basis. And you know, there's lots of nuance to it but it's the truth is indie film is change and the film industry is change and it's constantly, you know, doing that. Um, I, I I have hope, um, and strength, uh, because I really believe that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction and we bounce back and forth ebb and flow and our time will come. We shall overcome, right. You know, that, that, uh, it, it will come back that this huge amount of uh, redundancy and mediocrity and just garbage that gets produced now because of the change of the industry's business plans, and we can talk about that, um, is creating a rebellion. It's afoot in many ways, both I think aesthetically and narratively, as well as uh, from a business perspective. Um, that I think that what we've seen and you see it across all industries and you see the, the ramifications about it across our planet is frankly, unfair competition, predatory, uh, business actions that shut people out. The great thing that allowed those movies to get made was that, uh, it was not a high price of entry. New players could enter the field, right? And there were multiple points of contact, you know, to course correct and prove whatever was the the SOP status quo, you know, whenever everyone thought the best operating procedure for the business of the day was, you got to prove it wrong regularly because of the nature of media sequencing and the huge volume of players. That's not the case now, right? They've used predatory business practices to shut people out, right? To limit the choices of what get made and to try to frankly tune people's behavior, you know, in a predictable fashion, because that's what's best for business, quote unquote, not what's best for the artist. And I think that we see all of the cracks, you know, within that. And um that's going to be both with the light and frankly the knife gets in too. Um, and there will be real there will be real change for that. Mm-hmm. You know, so to kind of talk through like what, you know, what does that mean for the, the business and where is the business now? The easiest way I think to to look at that is that the, the film industry, you know, when it comes to the film industry, although I now realize even more what I have to say about the other thing, but when it comes to the, uh, the, 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 the film industry, it was historically a uh, ecosystem based on scarcity, right? And then the, the, the mad brilliance and disappointing failures of, uh, mavericks and pirates and uh, scoundrels and folks who thought they knew better than everybody else. Uh, and as a result, people made bold choices and they were willing to to try it out because the consumers and the audience um, had very narrow points of entry, for, bo- particularly for discovery, you know, but also general engagement, most of the movie theaters in the way things were sequenced there, you know, they, and they didn't have a wide variety. They sampled, right? They, they sampled, uh, through what was the, the only metric of success money. Right. And that was clear and accountable and transparent. Right. And now we've moved to a different ecosystem and a bit different business model. It's no longer based on revenue, right? The business model of the streamers is based on audience acquisition. An audience acquisition doesn't have to report revenue, right? If filmmakers actually got a piece of what they uh, delivered, how these companies profited on them, when you make a, a movie and it brings a new customer to one of the platforms, the streamers, as they, they say, and I know, cause I ran, you know, Amazon movies for a while. Um, when, when a new customer comes aboard, you know, what's important is their lifetime revenue. And, you know, at Netflix, the, that revenue might just be the subscriber revenue, but it places, uh, you know, like Amazon, you know, or, or uh, other places where people can shop, Apple, Disney, right? That revenue is worth a lot more than just a subscription fee. You know, a fair share would be uh, somebody having a cut of that. If the unions, SAG, WJ, both being in strike, but actually all of them, uh, really, you know, I think had a had a, you know. had a strategy for the long-term, they would be recognized that there has to be a separate deal that's made for folks who aren't exclusively in the movie business. If you are using movies to drive revenue in other fields, the people who create that product that drives that revenue have an argument, and I think a fair, fair argument, that they should have a cut of it, right? But that business, right? To, to, you know, of streaming an audience acquisition is a volume business. It's not single title. It's about getting people to, to uh, de- deliver habits of, of predictable consumption. And it's done by providing a cadence, right. Of, at a consistent quality in an environment that people have some trust in and ideally want to keep participating in. That was like what was said to me over and over before I went to Amazon, I ran a boutique streamer startup called Fandor and you know, 25% of that staff were experts in the customer acquisition business. And they made that really clear. You have to deliver new work on a consistent basis if you want people to, to subscribe, right? And because that's so, such a different business, right? Ultimately, the best way to get people to do that is for them all to watch the same thing. So you start to have you know, something that's like when you think of these big companies that are global and control these platforms that everyone's in and basically shutting out that competition, you start to see that it's almost the same mindset as a authoritarian dictatorship, right? How do, we, how do you maintain thought control? How do we uh, maintain predictable behavior? You, you, you shut out certain types of, of content, as they like to say, you reduce the value of that content by giving it names like content. I mean, and you get people to behave in more predictable, i.e. controllable ways, you know, Xi Jinping in China wants the same thing as the leaders at Netflix and uh, and the Amazon want. They want predictable uh, citizens who, who consume on a regular basis and keep the trains running on time. Not the
0: world I wanted to live in. Well, you were recently at the Locarno Film Festival, and you gave a keynote address, which many people said was a pretty scorching speech relating to a lot of the things you just <clears throat> talked about. And and it was titled, I think, 50 Proofs that the Cinema Apocalypse is Upon Us. And one of those things which really caught my eye and I think crystallizes the foundational uh, reasons for the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes uh, was that Netflix made $900 million on Squid Game and the creators received zero in residuals. That is the issue, isn't it? Yeah, and that, now that was
1: like purported. I don't have any like, you know, insider information on on that. That was something we put it elsewhere in the press that uh, I think I had a link to.
0: I hope. All right, let's call um, it five. Let's call it five hundred million. Okay.
1: Yeah. Just to be it, it
0: it it's it's crazy,
1: and I you know um, and you know you start to see I, which I just find somewhat shocking. Like I. I believe strongly that everyone in the film business entered because of love of cinema and with the, the best, the best reasons. They love these movies. They wanted to change hearts and minds. They wanted to inspire the young, you know, soothe the afflicted, you know, some of us wanted to afflict the, 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 the comfortable um, along the way, but you know, everyone came with good intentions to make something awesome. Right. And, for a variety of reasons, you know, you get incentivized to do other things, right? And a lot of people choose to do that. It's hard to say, I don't want to make an awesome living when you're given the chance. But we have to look at what the leaders on all sides of these things have actually done to the ecosystem. There's an analogy to the way that the fossil fuel companies have destroyed the planet and knew long ago that they were doing so and continue to suck every last dollar out of it at the expense of generations to come. And what's happening right now in, in I think all of our cultural industries, you know, because it's not just movies, right? you see you see those like stats of how few people actually make money in music streaming. And what a small paltry sum of the company's revenues go back to the artists everywhere. Um, We we are destroying culture, and you could say maybe like they have reasons that they want that because you know a lot of times people say you know, you know what it you know movie movies rock and roll rap fashion these are deteriorating our moral and ethical values. No, they just want people to be work slaves, generally speaking, I think. And you don't want people to, you know, it's great that American education is so damn expensive because then people have colossal student loans and they have to actually take the job in the financial institution to have a dream of paying things off. You know, when I met Hal Hartley, um, I had the good fortune of gentrification saving my poor ass in that my building went co-op and they paid us all 50 grand to move out of the building and I could pay off my student loans, right? Which meant I could be a PA for three years, Mm -hmm. you know, earning about 300 bucks a week while I dreamed and tried to learn the skills that would later take to become a producer. That doesn't happen these days, right? And if we don't have ways that allow people to pursue the cultural industries on a reasonable basis, we're not going to get the next generation Adrian Shelley's and Hal Hartleys and Spike Lee's and Jim Jarmusch's and all of those, those those folks, right? That that you have to be able to say it's not a crazy dream, you know that that I can actually go out there and be a creator. Entertainment is, I believe, it's America's second biggest and you know uh, export after military hardware, right? you know we destroy we destroy countries and planets and we entertain them with bread and circuses right it's a perfect equation uh, uh, of everything but you you start to see you know what what's occurred right we we've limited competition we we've excluded uh, opportunity we're doing everything that frankly is anti-american but at least the values i was raised out uh, along
0: the way um Is it an American problem? Is it an American problem in the sense that you look at Europe, you look at Canada, you look at Israel, there are government programs, government subsidies, government grants. You know, It just seems it it is easier. It's a more uh, rational system in other countries, other democracies, other capitalist countries. So is it an American problem where filmmakers are just on their own and it's just ultimately left up to the tech bros, as you call them, on the streaming side and the corporate guys, to just care about nothing more than the next quarterly shareholder report.
1: We, you know, that there's so much in what you just said, right, you know, yes, exactly. uh, That, you know, one of the things that also has occurred, you know, is the way that the entertainment industry is actually slave to the banking industry now, right? You know, that, that this whole peak content was fueled by cheap money, right? We, we, and driven by something other than profit. It was driven by stock price, right? And that's led everyone, uh, the, the best and the brightest leaders we had, um, to make a dumbass decision to totally jump into the streaming game, you know, which was, you know, a long term investment based on on an industry that's focused on short term rewards, right? You know, it's, it it doesn't make much much sense when you really dig down into it, but it's true that despite the fact that we have this incredible job producing, revenue producing dominance on a global basis, entertainment, right? that we, we don't recognize the, the value, which isn't just profit, right? Here's a perfect product that frankly nourishes our soul, that, that helps us deliver, uh, understand values, that creates empathy and compassion, right? Nothing's like it, right? Story itself is the, the number one original technology, innovation, Right. That allowed us all to build the incredible thing that is this planet still. Right. Like it, it's because we know fables, myths, religions, tales, you know, that help us guide us forward. Right. But we get stuck. Right. You know, that, you know, Barbie has to walk out of the matrix. Barbie is all of us. Put on a pink dress and say, no, take the blue pill. Right. You know, that, that, that we have to start to see that this is all a construct of our doing, and there's something else that we could do. Like, tell me who doesn't love movies, who doesn't love a good story or a good song or dancing or any of these things. Right. You know, and yet we kind of mock the people that choose to go at it. The, the most organized, together, rational people I know are artists. Right. The artists, particularly the self-employed ones, the ones that 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 don't have that don't have yet the opportunity to get that that corporate you know bailout, right? You know because they choose to put money elsewhere. Um, we put so little into the arts, yet when it, when we do, we get to see these huge results, right? Julie Taymor does the Lion King, and because she does the Lion King. This is huge enterprise. They're going to keep remaking The Lion King for every, every 10 years for another generation. But it, requ- it required somebody who is educated on Indonesian shadow puppetry and bunraku, right? You know, that you needed the mad brilliance that she brought to this story. And that was funded by the National Endowment of the Arts, right? You know, that that this is truly. When you fund an artist to let them be themselves, Mm -hmm. it's a gift that keeps on giving and gets bigger and bigger. In the you know, its heart grows, right? Its warm embrace grows, Mm -hmm. you know. And yet, you know, uh, we chastise it and run scared. Uh, I I think like that. So there's several the question of like, you know, America loves it loves making it but somehow we 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 think this myth always that you should be able to do it on your own there's no way that you can do it on your own i i have a movie opening today cassandro um directed by roger ross williams co-written by him based on a documentary he did um on the real life cassandro a Um, out gay Mexican lucha libre wrestler, right? Um, Really like the the first one that was allowed to win because the crowd loved him, right? And really uh, not just a transformative character and real life hero, but the movie too is beautiful. Crowds love it, right? And every step, of getting something that, like that made was uphill with several boulders rolling back upon you. And it only would have gotten to the point that we did uh, because of literally about 150 people at different times saved that movie's ass. Like, like something was happening and if they didn't go far beyond what you would expect, the movie wouldn't be what it is today. And that also includes the corporation of, of Amazon that, that funded it, mm-hmm. you know, that, that as you know, like you, you don't always know how to get to your goal, right. You know, and if you, if you have to prove that, you know, it and you don't get to explore, you may not find the path that needs it. And, and Amazon gave us room and gave us the, the financial support that we needed to
0: do it. Um, And was that because you, you had that exposure to them, that you were part of the company, that there was a connection, which may beg the next question of, without that, does the average guy who's not Ted Hope stand a fucking chance in hell of getting a movie about an out gay wrestler made? Like, are we kind of proving the point that it has become so difficult to get certain types of movies made? Uh, yes and no. I think that uh,
1: by by all by all means, Amazon uh, trusted me and empowered me, but they also trusted and empowered Gael Garcia Bernal, who's the lead actor and who produced it through his company, and they trusted and empowered Roger Ross Williams. Uh, who directed the the movie and directed the uh, original documentary, and they trusted and empowered their executive Brianna O oh, along the way. That everybody having levels of trust to get there, um, and that you know, and there's 35 other people along the way was was really uh, key. And just like I wouldn't have a career if I didn't arrive in New York City that same time that these 15 other people did, we wouldn't have this movie. If those thirty-five people weren't all working on it, it would not be the same uh, film. And you st- and you still had the boulders rolling down the hill. Yeah, exactly. Every sort of way. I wish I could say like a, it was a happy experience. It wasn't. It was hard as hell mm-hmm. and fragile every which way, and uh, just such a testament of faith and commitment. And when everyone is working together, what you can get to. Right. But Mm -hmm. it's not easy. Everybody there. Mm -hmm. So that degree, it, it feels, uh, fragile, right. That so many people were dependent upon and there were so many spots where things could have gone wrong Mm -hmm. to that degree. Yes. Super fragile, but somehow. And come back in 10 years and I probably can explain how, but I can't today. Somehow
0: we navigated you know the the labyrinth and got to well you're a, you're a skillful producer i mean that's the bottom line and congratulations by the way, and good luck on the on the release today I want to talk to you about this strike I want to read something you wrote, but before I do i've got to ask you what does the c mean in a m p t c because the I'm afraid to ask like I'm wondering if it's is it that C, but it's the American motion picture and television producers, AMPTP, but you've changed it to AMPTC. What does the C stand for?
1: Yeah, that you can't call that organization producers, and it's really there's lots of ways you can look at you know the way we use our vernacular and nomenclature to confuse and obfuscate right? You know that 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 goes on everywhere. So they call themselves producers, but they're the corporations and the companies. Got it. Ooh. You know, Wow. Got it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> we're I
1: there. Uh, I think it is suggested by some some of the readers on the substack of what the other alternative is, but they're companies and corporations. They're not producers. Okay. They're not the generate and, and originate and execute movies. They're the people who aggregate and distribute and finance
0: them. Okay. Well, here's something you wrote this week. It's an excerpt, obviously. Quote, the AMPTC has made no real attempt to solve it, meaning the strikes, because they are greedy and self-centered at our and the industry's expense. They have more than enough capital to solve several times over the wage and staffing issues. They chose not to because not only is that not the issue for them, but because they also get bonused by increasing their cash-on-hand cash flow. The bosses benefit from not being in production. It is gross, and I can't believe shareholders put up with it. I can't believe their employees put up with it. I can't believe the media doesn't call them out more. It makes one think they've bought everyone off but the ones who actually make the donuts. But the money and staffing is really just a smokescreen for the AMPTC to try to win on the other more crucial fronts. And then you go on to say, the strikes are not due to labor issues. They are due to overlord, disregard, and greed. Is that really all this is at the end of the day, that these are just greedy fucks who want to make $100 million sitting in the corner office? They don't give a shit about anybody else. They want to screw the writers and the actors, just like they did when video came out, vide- uh, videotapes and DVDs. and uh, Is that really all this is, Pet? You
1: you would have to kind of go back. To, I think at core of this strike right now, that the real issues are that transformation uh, from a uh, single title revenue producing industry, the movie business and the the series business, to a uh, one uh, of the manufacture distribution and access the platform of uh, streaming and that the kind of what it has to be looked at is predatory business practices of those companies, right? That um, it's not hard to, to look and see what's coming. There they will always be, you know, waging and staffing issues and you can choose to stall them if you want and you know we have to recognize that these companies uh, particularly the the fang the facebook amazon apple netflix google uh digital companies have so much cash on hand right they can easily buy the entire uh entertainment ecosystem um uh, for a small portion of what they they they've accumulated um uh, they, uh, that their methods, you know, which became legalized along the way, that is uh, trying to take over market dominance, right? And uh, along with our business needs, when you are a public company in particular, to show constant growth and what that all means. It is that same uh, overriding philosophy, so to speak, that has destroyed our planet for our children, right? That has created a world where we are hostile and polarized, you know, uh, where where we don't have the empathy and compassion we once did, where we all go bowling alone, if you go bowling, <laughs> you know? Who doesn't um, bowl? That every- yeah, we used to have community, right? And, uh, And I think a lot of that's that, that neglect of stewardship, neglect of long-term thinking that things aren't based on first principles that they don't know how to execute for anything other than, than, uh, you know, uh, market control, um, and growth. Right. And that's what it's all triggered, uh, to in that streaming and aggregation business. The key to that uh, is the the kind of double headed dog of uh, lack of transparency and uh, removal of of uh, participation and success. Right. We need an artist bill of rights. Hmm. Right. Really starts that 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 equates these with human rights. And just as you can't go out and sell yourself into indentured servitude, even if you wanted to, you shouldn't be able to give up your, your right to participation in success in a fair way. And yet, uh, the, the, uh, these companies, the, the streamers, and their enablers at all of the talent agencies who negotiated the, the deals, which all could have been something different, uh, basically uh, got everyone to agree to give up their back-end participation. So for a little while, everything seemed like it was a hit, except the hits, Mm -hmm. right? So the the films that normally would never pay out got paid out until it became the new normal. We drank the Kool-Aid everybody would seem happy there was no way of checking it because not just like just like the fact that people no longer have a right to share in the success they don't even get to see what their work generates as a business person or as an artist you need to see the results of your labor you shouldn't be denied that that should be illegal how am i supposed to adjust my behavior if i don't ever get to see the ramifications mm-hmm. i think a lot of people who who really dreamed that they would never be held responsible for for their actions in every which way and that's you know why we have jails right but i myself like to be held accountable i think actually most people with a sense of decency, want to be held accountable. My word is good. I am who I am. I'm a reflection of my actions. And in that same way, when I do something wrong, I need to be able to course correct. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, like, if my film doesn't work, I did something wrong. How am I supposed to course correct if I don't have access to the data? So with a little big, you know, by, by giving people a taste of wealth, They got people to neglect these other things that were so important. Transparency of data, metrics of success, sharing in the upside. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really uh, transpired now. And that's really the long plan, I think, in the strike, that they don't ever want to give up that. And, you know, as a, you know, I was a decent poker player when I was young. Into, you know, and I kept playing until I met some really good poker players and they, they, they played me so well. I never wanted to play that game again. And I tried to, I tried to see like, what were my own tells? Cause I was, I thought I could read faces, nervous ticks and gestures, you know, um, you know, even a stone faced, you know, uh rock. I thought I could understand what was going on in the hand. And, um, and I think when you look at different things over oh, the, the, this, uh, unfortunate display of, uh, of corporate overreach and greed, um, that, that, you know, is the strikes you see tells in like the one improvement that they did when you see the portion of revenue portion, uh, uh, of profit that any of the, that would be required for anyone to settle the strike, um, uh, you know that they have the means and they did a bump of like 20% to the Writers Guild and, uh, you know, but didn't address other things because they don't want to. Personally, I I think that they're prepared to go up more than double that amount uh, to do it, to keep the privacy, you know, uh, of what they now control, which is only going to change, I think, if the government and our representatives Start to say that that uh, the, this is unfair competition. We 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 are depriving the consumers of, of quality product, of choice. We are, uh we we are depriving these small business owners, the artists themselves, uh, of opportunity, and uh, to to have a well balanced, steady diet that doesn't. De- complete the environment and our consciousness, uh, we actually have to break up the, these entities.
0: And, and what about the issue of AI? Because that's a, a in a sense where the producers, the companies, the, the, the tech bros in particular, can literally do away with certain content uh, creators because the little box in front of you is going to create that content for you. And then you don't have to pay anybody anything. Yeah. I, I I think by the way, you
1: know, we are, I think recording on Zoom, which I think has a a, a piece in there um, in the, you know, when you start using it that actually gives them rights to what we are saying now, right? We are training their AI. Um, just like when we go on to Elon Musk's X, we are training his AI. And all of this that we generate, we no longer seem to have rights to, but that can be fixed. You know, I, I think that um, AI and technology in general is here to stay, and it's going to be rapidly increasing. And maybe one day we do get those proverbial jetpacks, or at least the transporters that allow us to be in the same room in different locations. Hey, maybe that's what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh but you if you have first principles, you can actually, I think, enforce um, and lead things towards the values and outcomes that one might want them to to, to be. that um, all of these existing generative AIs right now are trained on the creative work of folks who haven't been compensated. I'm pretty sure that's called theft, right?. <laughs> mm-hmm and yet we have other technologies that can allow there to be the the tracking of ownership and the automatic uh, payment and licensing of those things if the creators so want, right? So you could have an AI that has something akin to a blockchain and a smart contract attached to it and if the person has agreed to have the large learning model use their work to train it or their social media feed to train it. They get received some form of compensation or licensing along the way, but we haven't done that. I firmly believe that things like when you have what should be like-minded partners, artists, producers, distributors, studios, financers, the platforms that stream the, the, the work, you can sit there and actually agree on common principles that need to be enforced along the way um, and then build out from there. But that's not how it happened because we are willing to, to go willy-nilly into the future with total disregard. Like all you have to do is look at you know, hello, Maine is being hit by a hurricane right now as we speak. Right, it's too north to have that. It's supposed to happen in Florida. It's happening in Maine because Cal- of the California too the re- recently. We, re- oh, 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 uh the the not just ne- neglect mm-hmm. the 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 planned destruction of our environment at the expense of profit, mm-hmm. right and. We're seeing that in our cultural industries too. It's time that people say, hey, we're better than that. We can work together. We can determine values that we all hold together, and we can still build fantastic businesses and entertainment on top of that. Mm
0: -hmm. So in our final minutes together, we have the WGA strike, which is in day 136. Sag after is in day sixty three. I'm actually using your calculations. I added two days from what I read on your Substack. I I double checked. I had to double check that. (laughs) I figured you were methodical in your calculations. How are we going to get around the intransigence, the this intense stalemate that exists? People I talk to say, "All right, this thing might is probably going to go on until the beginning of twenty four at at least." Like, how does it end? I,
1: I, I, uh, you know. Uh, find some form of solace in the adage or formula that until the pain of the present um, uh, is so great, we will not get over our fear of the future, Mm -hmm. right? That when you ask yourself, why do things move so slow? That's the answer, right? We know what's good for us, right? Yet we do not do it, right? I should be dropping about 30 pounds. And I've known that for about 20 years. Uh, and I just am not going to do it because I love my cheese. What can I say? And you and, look and yeah. you look good. You look good, uh, Ted. Likewise, Andy, I was gonna say. Uh, the uh, I I think for everybody, and we have to recognize that both sides are in the, this strike um as uh, dug in and committed as folks are, are losing uh, so- solidarity amongst their own memberships, right? Like that um, they need to show that they care for the welfare of everyone, both sides do. And I frankly think that the, that first step, and I would consider it incredibly hopeful is that they they uh, say like let's work together, you know, to to manage the future better, right? So we avoid situations like this. Let's work together to manage the future better, um, and and that can be done by saying like we will mutually invest each, you know, according to our abilities, uh, in a organization that can develop a wide variety of strategies to address the wide variety of problems that exist in the film ecosystem. A think tank for the future of film, storytelling, and the businesses we build around that. I think that would be, frankly, it's not currently on the table. I don't hear anyone but me suggesting it. But I think it would actually say we're committed to preventing these problems from occurring again, right? But the the truth is, like that, is antithetical, I think, to the business interests of the platforms. They shouldn't be called streamers. They should be called platforms, right? And they should be treated as a utility. And I think that is virtually inevitable that that's going to happen, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I think the first step for the welfare of cinema is the traditional Hollywood studios to recognize that they've been hoodwinked time and time again by these tech companies and their interests are not aligned, right? That, that if I was the unions, I would introduce right now separate uh, payment models for, for those that, that solely earn their revenue through entertainment, the traditional studios, those members of the AMPTC, and another higher wage level, for those that earn revenues through, through global integrated practices, you know, uh, like Apple and Amazon um, and and others, right? Um, so that's one, right? I, or two, I think if we hit two, three, right? Three things there that a, a think tank for the future that shows shared interest a separation of the traditional studios fra- from the, the platforms and a separate uh, wage scale for those that uh, exclusively earn their, their industry, earn their revenue from the entertainment uh, world. I, I think that there are other practices that have existed for some time uh, that really did wonders at maintaining a level playing field and fair competition. And as a result, when they were in practice, you know, not only the creators, but also the audience and the consumers benefited. And those were traditional antitrust statutes like the FinCEN laws in television syndication and the Paramount decree in theatrical exhibition. And there are models that other companies that other countries have that also enhance the the competition. And when that competition is enhanced, there's innovation and excellence that happens as a result and the consumer benefits. And we have to recognize how tightly linked all of that is and how fragile the world is now, if we want to have the equivalent Of the climate disasters that we're having now in the entertainment business, all we have to do is maintain a steady course. Mm -hmm. But we
0: actually are at an inflection point where we can change that. And what you're suggesting describes, at least on the surface, uh, like like almost a top to bottom overhaul of the entire ecosystem. Is that something that's doable? to get these strikes ended and in a reasonable time frame. I mean, I had a lawyer once who I was working with and he said, our, our case is not gonna settle until the other side starts bleeding. And so my question to you is, are we seeing any blood yet? Are we seeing even a, even a cut yet? Um, that's why uh, I, I think that there are cuts, but they're not
1: cuts to those that are in the revenue for things other than the entertainment business. The cuts are to the, work, the film workers and, and series workers that, that exist, and the cuts are to the traditional studios uh, and, and broadcasters. And there's a lot of blood already on the field, in both those range. So that you can see an uh, alliance of interests emerging, um, solutions that exist, but it requires the, the AMPTC, you know, or government, to, to, uh, recognize that there's divergent interests within that organization.
0: Um, so my, my last question is what do you think of what Bill Maher is doing? Um, there's only so
1: much input that I can take and I'm a huge, uh, consumer. So I'm only peripherally, you know, aware, you know, that he's going back to work, you know, uh, in the midst of this like Drew Barrymore, went back to work. Um, And I think that uh, all the lessons we've learned in life show that we can't put our self-interest ahead of the community and that sometimes we have to defer our satisfaction and pleasure for long-term thinking for the common good. And frankly, I don't think
0: they're doing that. Would you go so far as to describe people who are doing that as scabs?
1: Oh, the the uh, Because I haven't um, spoken to either one of those folks and don't expect I ever will, uh, I can't say that I actually know their full perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't like the acceleration of, of language along the way, kind of stuck in a place as someone who doesn't get to have a union, right? I'm not a member and I don't get to have one. There are tremendous efforts to move that through as the industry changed, But frankly, I still consider what I do closer to management along the way, unless I get hired and then I'm also a a worker. But the way that I work now is I invest in myself and I bring other people in and I have a collective enterprise. That, uh, that said, folks like them, they're leaders. They are leaders, you know? And uh, leaders take on responsibilities that is bigger than themselves. That's a blessing, right? To be in service of something bigger than yourself, right? That's what we should all hope to find in, in our life. But you have to accept the responsibility. And from my little corner of the world, It doesn't seem like they're accepting that responsibility. And I totally get how hard it is. Like independent film itself is a crime. The only reason that the unbelievable truth or trust gets made is that in America, we are essentially free to exploit anyone to be well beyond the extent of the law if they so desire right? So everyone on those movies, you know, cheated themselves. We cheated them. And, and But in the end, we treated people as fairly as we could, right? So the history of America, you know, like both how our business has been built, slavery and different sorts of things like that, genocide, how, how we built this country is horrible, right? But we're here now, and we have to find ways to to deal with it. And to me, that's like to try to peep, you know, treat, treat people fairly as you would want to be treated yourself. And I would hate to be employed by somebody who said that they disregarded uh, what you know what what was a collective agreement uh, just so they could get back to work. Even mm-hmm. they are quote employing many people which itself is a, a, a gift unto
0: itself. Yeah. You know. His his justification is that there's a lot of below-the-line crew, and they're impacted by this. But you could say that about every single movie and TV production. And if every production went back into production for that reason, there really wouldn't be a strike, as it would be completely and utterly undermined and would probably decimate the, the industry on many of the levels that the SAG-AFTRA and... WGA unions are concerned about. So before I let you go, you mentioned Cassandra, which is opening today in theaters. Good luck with that. What else do you got coming up that you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, well, today, September 15th, um, also, not not just Cassandra hits the theaters, um, but also a, a film that I was able to to help support, uh, Jerry Brown, The Disruptor, mm-hmm. on the term governor and multiple time uh, presidential candidate uh, Jerry Brown is going to uh, hit PBS on the America Master, American Master Series. Um, so, you know, thr- thrilled about that. Um, Cassandra will hit Amer- uh, Amazon Prime in the States uh, next week, you know, so see it on the big screen. But you know, if uh, you have any financial hardship, save you dollars and uh, watch it, you know, with your free shipping purchase uh, at home later. Um, but what I'm really most excited and in some ways, I think in many ways of all the films I've been on, both for personal and broader reasons, uh, is perhaps the most important film I've been involved with today is a movie called Invisible Nation. It's directed by my wife. Vanessa Hope, she also produced it with me and a group of others along the way. And we are bringing it out to the regional uh, American uh, Film Festival, starting at Woodstock and going to the Hamptons and Mill Valley in Seattle, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and elsewhere. Um, many, many other uh, places to, to come, but it's a, a documentary um, on Taiwan and the predicament that it finds itself in which i think mirrors much of what we talked about from an independent filmmaker perspective for many people is that you know 23 million people in this island nation are trying to have the maintain their right to determine their future and they're caught between a rock and a hard place otherwise known as China and the United States and uh, it's not a comfortable position for anyone to be in um but it's it's a remarkable story. I find it incredibly inspiring. You know, Taiwan had a peaceful transition into democracy in 1996, and has, is one of the most vibrant uh, democracies uh, happening today, certainly in 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 Asia. Um, so, you know, led by the only female president in Asia. So, I, I you know, it's a it's a great story, super well told. I'm really excited to share it with folks across the globe. Um, and you know it's uh, it's like every other movie. It's a, just a testament to, to to struggle and how much it's worth the struggle of not settling and keeping a higher principle there and trying to reach that
0: level of excellence that that you envision along the way. It's seven years in the making. Well, good luck with those projects. Uh, folks should definitely check them out. They all sound extremely interesting. And, and thanks for coming on. This was a great conversation, very insightful. You'll have to come back. Also, thank you for, over the years, you've been very supportive and very helpful and very involved with the Adrian Shelley Foundation. So I want to thank you for that. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. And thank you, Andy. All right. Take care, Ted. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week.